Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, this is Kat, Communications Director of HRN, here with a preview of Episode 2 of Meat and 3. This week, we're talking pork. We'll learn the best way to make a BLT. I don't think I've ever successfully made a BLT just because I eat the bacon before any other part. How pitmasters and restaurateurs are helping put small-scale pig farmers back to work in Alabama. It's all about money. That's the bottom line. What pork has to do with economics? Farmers could be particularly affected by China's threat to levy its own tariffs on pork and soybeans. And with government. Basically all of politics is pork at this point. So tune in on Friday afternoon for your weekly serving of Meat in 3. And make sure you subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes air. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's number 43 in the Good Beer Seal. Today is Tuesday, May 22nd, 2018. We've been doing this show for a long time. I think it's our ninth year. Well, we've been talking a lot this year about uh, the Cicerone program, advanced Cicerones. We've had some higher level uh, New York City uh, industry people that have taken the tests. And we finally have some of our master Cicerones who are based in the New York area. And that's a really exciting show. Uh, we've got uh, Max Becker and Rylan Daly, who both work for the high-end division of AB. So, you guys, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on. And uh, you're, you're also joined. Let's just everyone say their name. And, and, and once again, Master Cicerone. Yeah, I'm, uh, Max Baker. Thank you for having us. Master Cicerone. Ryan Daly. Thanks, Jimmy. And certified Cicerone. Lazy Clifford. Hey. All right. So, you guys uh, answered the call, and thanks for coming out. Yeah. But it is interesting. You know, we've got... You know, if not generations, uh, you know, centuries of sommelier certificates. And even I took a sommelier Society of America course in the 80s. And, and, uh, you know, it's great to see how far the Cicerone program has come. I mean, 12 years ago at Jimmy's Number 43, a guy named Sam Merritt, who you might know from Las Vegas now, he was teaching a certified uh, server class for Cicerone when it was just really starting out. And now there's advanced Cicerone, and we've done a couple of shows about that. But let's just talk about what the mass Cicerone means to you guys, because you guys went out and, and you passed it, and you know you're really your jobs are like beer educators, which is kind of what you know that that role I guess is is meant to be. And we're gonna also do some beer quiz. We've got a lot of questions related to the mass Cicerone syllabus, which I know is very challenging. So let's start, Max, to say a few things about you know why did you uh, go for the mass Cicerone and you know, how grueling it was to, to get it. Yeah, so it's it's a huge challenge. Um, I was kind of tapped, and they said, hey, do you want to take this test? And I heard all the horror stories and finally got on the Internet, and I didn't find a lot about it. Not a lot of people are uh, talk about it. It's very close to the cuff. I went on the Reddits of the world, the Google, and I didn't see a lot. And How start- many Master Cicerones are there in the world? There's 16 That's as Ryan. we speak. Yep. Only 16. So maybe that's why there's not a lot of talk about it. <laughs> we know Malty, at Malty Rich on Instagram, Rich Higgins has been on the show a couple of times. 
and Morel, uh, Morella Amato, Amato in Toronto, who mm-hmm. is what's her? Has anyone know her hashtag at something? Uh, Beerology, maybe. Beerology. She's in yeah. Toronto. She we we've been buddies, but um, yeah, man, sixteen Masters Thrones in the world, dudes. Congratulations. This show's been Thank months you. in the making, yeah. and thanks, Lacey, for bringing you in. And and for yeah. you, Ryan, you know what? What was your so Max? You got tapped. They just say like you have the IQ and the. the uh, so I, I moved from San Francisco to New York to take an education role, and it was it basically said go out and become a master around Which to me, I was like, oh, that's uh, okay, no pressure. <laughs> uh, I always joke that it took about two years and thirty pounds, and I fin- finally did it. But <laughs> now, now I'm trying to get. Get back in the fighting way here, so. So you you were working in beer, but you really spent two years studying for it. Yeah, I was working in beer, doing sales and marketing in North California, and I really had to commit almost two years of sixty plus hours a week, sometimes, just reading, tasting, reading, writing notes, forgetting, remembering, <laughs> and uh, kind of drinking, drinking lots of. <laughs> lots know, of, I, lots I, of samples. I looked at this the master's from <laughs> syllabus online. Big shout out to Ray Daniels. I've never met you, but Lucy Saunders, I know, is your buddy out in the Midwest. Uh, a lot of great people. Really, really, you know, congratulate you on what you've done building up this program. And, and Ryan, tell us your, your journey on this. How did you get tapped to take it in the first place? Sure. So, you you're, know, you're up in Buffalo, New York, right? Yep, just outside uh, Hamburg, New York, which is a suburb of Buffalo. Uh, for me, you know, I took the level two, the certified Cicerone exam in 2012. And after I did that, you know, at the time, I wasn't necessarily thinking about going for master. This was before the advanced level even existed. And it's kind of one of those things, are you up for the challenge? Do you have enough time, effort to put into it? But also you kind of question, do you just have what it takes to pass it, right? I mean, at this point, there wasn't even maybe half the number that there are now. And then for me, when they first introduced the advanced exam, I sat for the first exam in February of 2016. And when I passed the advance, it kind of gave me the confidence, you know, after studying for a few months for that, I said, you know what, if I put in the time, you know, I think I could maybe give the master a run. And I put together a, you know, another year and a half study plan. And fortunately, Max was my predecessor. So I was able to use him as a soundboard and just gave it a run and thankfully was able to pass. Oh, that's great. And Lacey, you helped put together the show. Um, these guys work with you. What's the importance of having master cicerones as beer educators? You know, how, how do you see them in the oh industry? Oh, my gosh. Well, no one knows more than these guys. I mean, when you take these guys anywhere on a tasting or to meet people, um, everyone is amazed at how much they didn't know about beer and how much more there is to discover. It's pretty cool. And how good-looking we are. That's right. <laughs> well, also, you guys have your, your natural speakers and great, you know, media people. Um, you know, world watch out for the master cicerones. A few years ago, it was like uh, our buddy from the brewery, Patrick Patrick Rue in, in California, became a master cicerone. And some people were surprised. I don't think we knew that he was actually taking it. But it also made sense that, oh, he's a, a brewer, has a lot of deep knowledge that, that he would do that. But are, are, are most of you guys more in terms of like you're, you're almost academics and you're educators mm, yeah. more than actually working brewers? Yeah, I'd say it's a little split. You know, you have a few people that work specifically for brewery, like Patrick, uh, a few of the brew dog guys. Uh, you have a few people that work directly for the Cicerone program. Some people are just doing consultancy and kind of their own gig. Uh, Max and I do a lot of education, obviously, with the high end. So there's not, it's one of those things where everybody asks, well, if you pass, what happens? What do you become? What's, what's the job after the fact? And it's really not one thing. I think everybody kind of goes down a different path, but ultimately we're all kind of celebrating beer 
and kind of paying forward just mm. how amazing beer is. Yeah. I, d- I do think having a different backgrounds helps you with the exam, though. Um, I heard Patrick had a law background. Um, I have a background in classical studies, which means I can memorize a lot of things and then, <laughs> and then quickly forget them. Uh, but uh, help working at a brewery helps because it, it kind of takes a village. And mm. almost every person you see that works in the brewery industry, at the time I was studying, I asked, hey, do you know this? Have you seen this? Can I smell that? Can I taste that? Um, so I was picking the brains of everybody I met for two years um, and to kind of almost be like a symbiote and just take out their knowledge uh, mm-hmm. to get past the hump of the 85% you need to pass the test. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it definitely was not an individual effort. I mean, Max was huge with me, but you know, I had a small study group of three other guys that were taking the exam with me. So we were able to bounce some ideas, bounce information off each other. You know, one of the guys, Gavin Harper, who ended up passing, brewmaster, incredibly smart guy. Uh, Joe Vogelbacher owns a brewery down in Charlotte. James Ty works here locally in the city. We know James very well. Yeah, yeah so um, in addition to just those guys, kind of my inner circle, I mean, obviously the guys that are, or in the women that are writing the books, uh, you're doing in-person trainings, uh, in-person tastings, things like that. So you're, you definitely have to be in that mindset where you're just a sponge and you're absorbing everything you can on all things beer. You know, some of the, the topics that we've talked about over the years that have never been addressed properly, which I'm hoping the Master Cicerones can address, yeah. are, first one is uh, descriptive terms in, in tastings, you know. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of people who have done BJCP tastings, and, you know, going back in the 19th century, people, especially in France with wine, lived on farms, and they had horses, and they used words like barnyard or horse blanket, and then <laughs> it seems more recently younger people might say there's a Lucky Charms note or, or a serial, you know, references. You know, how does that relate to really what we're tasting, you know, in, in our glass? Because that's a, isn't that a big part of what you guys do is describing what you're tasting? Yeah, and I'll, I'll take it first, then Max can weigh in. Uh, yeah, I think as you work your way up in the levels of the uh, Cicerone ladder, you definitely, the expectation is you become much more adept and descriptive with what you're perceiving. So I'll just give you an example. Let's just say... You smell a beer and you say it's fruity. Okay, well, what kind of fruit? It's citrus fruit. Okay, well, what kind of citrus fruit? It's orange. Okay, is it orange peel? Is it orange pith? Things like that. So as you kind of work your way up, you just have to continue to drill deeper and deeper and become more descriptive. Mm. And that applies to everything from malt, hop, fermentation, flavors, aromas, things like that. Uh, So not only your ability to you know, articulate that, but your ability to um, essentially identify that in any beer that's put in front of you. And, th- and then kind of going up from that, you almost have to get to a point where you have to commit to, to learn the specific flavor compounds. So, you know, we just came back from a week in Charlotte uh, training with Aroxa, just always is a constant refresh. But um, as Dr. Simpson says, if you smell, say, uh, or Dr. Fi- Simpson, Dr. Simpson, uh, uh, probably one of the top tasters in the world. Runs a company called Kara Technologies, um, Aroxa, uh, which create flavor standards for water, wine, milk, beer. Um, so he can take 32 ounces of beer, spike it with, say, uh, 4-ethylphenol, which is one of the main phenolic compounds in uh, Brett beers. And you really can taste it, smell it, and, and, and commit it to memory. And the way he describes it is, you know, this is 4-ethylphenol. You know, this, the industry says it could smell like horse blanket, fermented olives. But if you smell it, like I like uh, that fermented yeah. olives, but yeah. <clears throat> I want that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In his in his mind, he says, you know, if you see a color or if you even have a memory, as long as you can associate that back to this being four ethylphenol, mm-hmm. that's the truest way to become a better taster. Is 
mm. really get to the nuts and bolts and then you associate something and you can't take the the group's association it's your own unique perspective yeah and i think just to build off of that you know one of the things that's unique as you're being tested within the master cicerone uh, exam is you know they're testing you to identify specific flavors by compound name right but how many people if we walk around this bar right now and say hey does smell this four ethylphenol <laughs> right. outside of max and i most people are gonna be like what the hell are you talking about so they're also saying it sounds better than uh, horse, <laughs> horse blanket. Blanket. yeah <laughs> yeah right um Lazy, right you're like yeah. yeah but at the same time they Give test the you science behind it. <laughs> they test you to put it into very consumer friendly language right and i think ultimately that's kind of the goal of anybody that's a, a Cicerone, whether it be certified, advanced, master is, yeah, you know, you can get super beer geeky and technical, but at the same time, you're really just trying to get more and more people excited about beer and doing that in a way that they can easily understand and easily have a point of reference to. Yeah, one of the biggest things we do, um, even taking BJCP tests and, and doing a lot of tasting training is we always tell people we're going to take them from the subjective to the objective. So if you tell me this beer tastes like this, we should be able to go across the street to Whole Foods, taste the fruit, taste the herb, taste the cookie, taste the cracker, and it should it should be apples to apples. Um, subjective tasting, it's a lot of poetry, but um, it doesn't help people learn flavors, and especially consumers, you know. That's Ryan amazing. said, uh, people could say, oh, it tastes like citrus. Oh, I hate citrus. Oh, it tastes like grapefruit. I love grapefruit. So getting more descriptive and more um, objective is, is kind of the key goal we, we train people to do and constantly train ourselves to learn more about that's great so it's like it's just like a higher level of of, of communicating i mean it's a uh, off subject is like people from the midwest often don't like fish i'm from new england i love fish and it's the same kind of thing you just made me realize this subject of conversation oh do you like fish some people say no some people say yes yeah i remember the first time i went to hawaii and had shave ice i was like what are these flavors it's not, it's not watermelon or, or honeydew melon it's yeah. lilikoi and lychee and all these other things that I was not exposed to, so if I read that on a piece of paper, I'd before. So maybe then, some of those nothing, yeah. those tropical fruits smell like horse blanket, right? <laughs> Sometimes, right. right? Yeah. But you guys are cool. Um, and Lacey, being around these guys, you know, are you learning from them? Uh, well, Ryan actually was my teacher when I was studying for certified cicerone, so I definitely learned everything I know from these guys. That's for sure. And what what kind of situations are are, are they put in? So you're working with with. Retail accounts, training mm-hmm. industry, salespeople. What are some of the actual jobs that you guys do as master cicerones? Sure. So, you know, we kind of train people across what we would just say is beer-based topics. So it might be flavor, tasting, ingredients, process, pairing beer and food. And then we also try and uh, train people on some of the, the beers, the breweries within our, our portfolio. So those are kind of our two wheelhouse spaces. And we'll do that with uh, internal sales reps, whether it be um, just high-end AB or from some of our breweries, uh, we'll work with our wholesalers. Sometimes uh, state-dependent might do things with retailers, maybe some consumer events. So it's a it's a little bit of a full spectrum of who we'll, we'll work with and who we'll train, but for the most part, it all comes back to either beer or what we'll say brewery or brand. And everyone's uh, always excited, too, no matter who it is. Like, There's oh, a lot of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I actually want to go more with this. I just like how you just, you know, help me understand when we're talking about language, you just said about some people like citrus and they don't, you have to get more. Is it getting more descriptive or is it, is it being less descriptive? I, I think it's getting language. more descriptive because um, everyone has a different lexicon and it's kind of 
said, like citrus is such a broad category. Tropical is such a broad category. Red fruits is such a broad category. So it's getting more descriptive to where people are like, you know, I, I love raspberries, but I hate blueberries or I like apricots. I like that. That's me. Yeah, but I hate peaches. So <laughs> I like this even, guy. even as you describe beer, you know, um, as you're a, a bar putting a, a menu description on paper, you know, thinking about that or even how we call beer sour, that turns a lot of people away from trying great, mm. great beers. But, you know, if you said it tastes like Greek yogurt, people will be like, well, I love Greek yogurt or tastes like kombucha. And people will say, you know, I drink that every day. So. I got my own Scooby. Yeah, you got my own Scooby. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a uh, it's a lot about hey, Ryan. Say that yeah. again one more time. I got my own Scooby. That's the best yeah, line so far. Yeah. That's a good cut. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's it's getting down to just relating it to food because you know at the end of the day, beer is a food product. There's so many flavors that go from beer to food and food to beer that uh, breaking it down, it's just beer. Um, and there's all these great flavors, whether it's in the malt, the hops, the water, the yeast, um, and just finding ways to be technical, but also just relate them to the average person. Uh, and I think it's going to bring more people into the category when, when we stop being trying to be as fancy as the wine world um, and use more just everyday language, like tastes like Greek yogurt. Right? We're, we're on, to, on to a roll. This is going great. Quick shout out. Uh, what beer is in uh, our glass? So we are Max. drinking a uh, Goose Island Lolita from the uh, year of our Lord 2013 here. <laughs> it's so good. It was at the Three Sisters series? Yeah. Uh, yeah, part of the Sour Sisters. Uh, Lolita is aged in wine barrels, put about 50 pounds of fresh raspberries, uh, a little bit of wild yeast. So, yeah, you get this nice fresh raspberry jam-like quality, but then there's also kind of this nice mm-hmm. tart, sweet tart, chalky um, taste and texture to it as well. It's pretty One delicious. All right. great. That's a great start. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. Become a member and check out the new Meet and Three uh, weekly news series. I don't know if it's weekly yet, but it should be. You guys got to oh, keep it going. It's weekly, David. Good job. But uh, you've got a pork show up, and I'm sure you'll have some beer shows with us. Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network. So we got we got the guys here, Matt Cicerone, uh, soon to be called Yoda. 
Max Backer <laughs> and Ryan Daly and, and Lacey, who's on her way up. She'll be a master's. Oh, yeah. But um, we're going to get deeper into some of the master's Cicerone syllabus because I'm sure a bunch of listeners want to ask you guys questions. So uh, just from the syllabus, you know, the, one, of the, one of the points is the historical development of beer styles. Um, you know, what's an example of a tax or regulatory impact that really changed beer style uh, in, in some time in history? Mm. I mean, we know there's some that everyone talks about. But there's probably others that you guys had to study. And I'm actually curious how many of these examples you guys studied or were in the test, too. Yeah, I mean, from tax, I mean, I might go to, like, the English parallels where, you know, they started to tax beers by gravity. And, you know, you originally when you kind of had the onslaught of uh, English IPAs and, you know, higher six-plus percent. Alcohol and then uh, with a little bit of temperance, uh, wartime to where so kind of going from from eighteen hundreds into the 1900s. early nineteen hundreds, yeah, where all of a sudden changing. you know that that grain it needs to be used for other services, so you start taxing brewers on uh, the gravity, so essentially you know what's going to determine the level of alcohol for the most part in the beer. Uh, it takes a lot of grain to to get that higher level of gravity. So if you're being taxed on how much you're using, you're going to start to Lighten That's that, a really interesting that. point. I mean, I know that we've had like 19th century, you know, English beer styles, like Ron Pattinson talks about this writer, and they were like, they were bigger, hoppier, you know, beers. And so is it our perception of like what an English pale ale is, is because of that change? Well, you kind of have... Because uh, everyone know, what, thinks it's like this mild, kind of easy drinking mm, ale. Sure. Well, there's there's what we would refer to as like the British, the bitters, kind of a ladder there. So... Very similar DNA, malt bill, hot bill, yeast, but you're just kind of dialing up a little bit more alcohol, a little bit more bitterness. So you have, you know, your ordinary, your best, your strong bitter, aka ESB. Uh, then you get into like the English IPAs of the world. So in terms of the inputs of the beer, the grain, the hops, the yeast, very similar, but you're just kind of dialing things up on a, a few different rungs of the ladder. Um, so that's kind of a good example. You know, if you think of Scottish ales, same thing. You know, you have uh, very similar inputs. Tell us, we don't we don't know Scottish. So I knew I knew not if everyone. I, did you know about the change in, in English ales based on tax and regulation? Did you know that, Max? Uh, before I started reading, <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't on my it wasn't on my my university course circuit. But uh, I think one of the things I found out studying was like as long as there's been beer, there's been beer taxes. Um, which was interesting, and going back to Scotland, you know, finding out that part of the unification of Scotland and England was that Scotland wasn't going to pay any tax on on malt or gravity. So, because they were making a lot of high gravity beers, they're also making a lot of Scotch. So, you have some styles up there that were allowed to evolve and stay higher alcohol, like your your Scotch ale or wee heavy. Um, but that was like a, a political trade off. Yeah, definitely. You know, we always reference a little Braveheart before we get into it, but. Uh, <laughs> So this uh, is you were bringing this up. This is something that you guys usually talk about in this context. Uh, yeah, to a certain degree, and it, it depends. You know, if we're doing a, a training for certified cicerone, they're probably not going to dig too deep into specifics of tax tax implications on style development. But you certainly need to know um, kind of the overall anatomy of any style that's listed on the anatomy uh, the syllabus, and that comes down to you know stats and ingredients and anything unique in process, flavor profiles things like that. Um, but things that happen with tax, temperance, maybe just local ingredients that were available at the time, the local water profile, um, all is going to kind of roll up into the types of beers that were being made. Yeah, it be so give us a couple. Of, so we've talked English ales, 
Scottish means Scotch ales Mm -hmm. and stayed strong. A couple more examples of that. Well, to me, I... What I really find fascinating in terms of style development is the impact of local water profile on styles that came to be. So as you kind of learn a little bit more about water chemistry, you learn a little bit more about, you know, certain minerals, certain ions and, you know, how they impact the pH of a beer and what that does in the brew house, uh, what that might do in fermentation, other uh, minerals that might be there that accentuate hop character versus malt character. And as you start to see styles, so let's just take uh, Dublin. For example, so when you think of Dublin, Jimmy, what sort of beer do you think about? Um, I don't want to say, but most people say Guinness. Yeah, it's just Irish stout in general. Yeah, so Guinness. Irish stout, that's right. Right, so, you know, uh, a lot of uh, black malt, roasted barley, um, you know, so Dublin's known to have uh, a very high... You're not supposed to ask me questions. Right? Yeah, no, I had, to, I, had to get you, I had to get you one. You know, we're going to throw it back at you. Um, well, no, you know, and not to get kind of too geeky into water chemistry, but uh, Dublin has very high levels of uh, bicarbonate, which, you know, really impacts the pH, the alkalinity of uh, the beer. So, you know, the only types of beer they could make at the time, this is before water adjustment technology existed, was using heavy amounts of roasted malts, roasted barley, uh, to really dial in some of those key metrics that are necessary to produce a pretty clean, balanced beer. And you go into Munich and find examples. You can go into Pilsen, Burton-on-Trent. So to me, I I really kind of enjoy more how the just raw ingredients and the availability of the raw ingredients to certain styles played such a key role in um, where those styles came from and you know pretty much why they work so well. And for some of those, they're not working with modern technology, so it was trial and error and taste they made a beer they knew you know if we use too much of x or too much of y it doesn't taste to the the, how we want it to be and if we don't like it then our consumer won't like it so um it's interesting going back to munich and making these dark beers these dunkles and when they figure it out and when they found out that the technology and the methodology to to make lighter beers like german pilsners or, or czech premium pale lagers um used to be called the bohemian pilsner their palate wasn't liking it. So they had to make a, a lighter version of a darker beer. So it's interesting how just because you can doesn't mean you, you should. Uh, so some, some places like liked lighter beer, but they didn't, they didn't uh, dig so the hops. They liked, didn't li- so dig they the bitterness. Made, what, was it the Dunkel that was just like Yeah, so the, you know, the, the Dunkel is the, the godfather of Munich beers. And then um, in 1894, I uh, love Dunkel. Yeah, uh, Dunkel Lagers. Yeah, they're uh, they're the one beer that no one's ever had. I say because until you have a fresh uh, Dunkel, it'll it'll change your life. Um, fresh right right from the brewery. But once once they came out with the uh, Munich Hellas in 1894, the Spaten Brewery, you know people were a little hesitant at first, and it eventually caught on. But it's got a similar uh, kind of sweet to to bitter profile as the Dunkel minus some of the Kind of pretzel. So you're uh, saying in Munich notes, it but. took them a long time. They resisted. Yeah, so they lot, resisted coming from uh, the you know the their neighbors to the east, and you know in Prague the 1842 you know rolled out the barrel of, of Pilsner Kell and said to the world we we're making clear hoppy beer. That's uh, that's it's very fantastic. And Germans being, you know, that was their industry. So northern Germany started catching on and, and making similar style to the Czech. Czech beer, lighter and, and, and malt character, more uh, attenuated, things like that. And, and in Munich, it took them a little bit. And, and then when they when they switched over, they, they didn't go for a big a big hoppy dry beer. They went for 
you know, what I, I consider to be the best beer style in the world, a Munich Ooh, Hellas. So, oh, yeah. If one beer could be my spirit animal, Jimmy, that's, that's the Munich Hellas. So. Oh, that's good. You yeah. might be the next Yoda. Right. I want to shout out you guys on Instagram. It's, it's at Master C Max, Max and yeah. at Master C Ryan. Actually, I don't know if you can you reference any books that you've read or studies just, just on this topic alone of the history of beer styles? I mean, there's a lot of good books. I mean, Tasting Beer by Randy Mosier's uh, one that covers a pretty good um, spectrum of all things beer, and he gets into styles a little bit. Probably the one that I think is really well done and somebody that I really enjoy reading is Jeff Allworth, uh, The Beer Bible. Love that guy. Yeah. Um, you know, I've met him, I sat next to him at a beer dinner years ago, uh, just really down to earth, really fun to hang out with, talk beer, and this is before I knew, you know, a fraction of what I know now, uh, not that I know much. Um, but I'd say when it comes to styles, uh, kind of the history, the story behind a lot of styles, the Beer Bible by Jeff Allworth is is definitely worth a, a pickup. Yeah. I second that. <laughs> yeah, um, and we did a show with him a couple of years ago. So I um, I think tasting beer is probably it's where I really got into reading and learning about beer. I mean, I had a dog-eared cover that I lost, but um, it came out with the second edition, which I haven't read yet. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, I was just counting the books I read this morning for taking the test. I think it was like 60. Um, and I would say if you're studying for the master system exam, be very careful. If you read a few chapters, there's a fine line between like a kind of fun read and something that is providing you the information for the, for the test. So um, the story aspect of it doesn't, uh, isn't as needed for the test as the, you know, what's, what's the components of the beer? What's, who, what are the commercial examples? Um, what's the, the grist bill and all those things. So, um, but it's a good respite sometimes to just read a book and say, you know, I went cover to cover in, in two hours and I really enjoyed the stories. Um, now I still have to check them and make sure they're true. And that's the other thing is you can read a lot of, of, of books, uh, but I would always, I would always get a couple of validations before, before putting that on a note card as the, as the uh, truest answer you could give. So there's fake news out there. Uh, not fake news, but I mean, I mean don't let the, the facts ruin a good story sometimes. So mm-hmm. um, it's just, you know, you're uh, You're the first person ever. I didn't realize that Munich was mostly making Dunkel styles until the late 1800s. Yeah. Um, it always sounded like, oh, they adopted, you know, lo- Hellas loggers. Yeah, Hellas loggers came in. I mean, and from what I've read, you know, they were, they meant and they said, well, wait a minute. And Spaten actually was the first brewery to do it. And. They were one of the first breweries to really patent or try out refrigeration um, in their maturation cellar. So, you know, about five years later, all the big six had had Munich Hellas. And now you only see Dunkel's every so often there in there. If you go to a beer garden or the English gardens in, in Munich, you probably see people drinking a lot of Weiss beer and a lot of, a lot of Dunkel. Yeah, Hellas. Or excuse me, Hellas, yeah. yeah. It's, maybe it's maybe some that. Americans that are over there that listen to the show said, I'm going to try a Dunkel for the uh, first time. I tell you, if you're yeah. in Munich, you have to try some Dunkel. It was, uh, it was, a- any yeah. shout-outs to American Dunkels? I'm shouting out to Sly Fox in Pennsylvania. They always sneak in a, a, a Dunkel that you can get uh, maybe once a year. Uh, uh, we're in St. Louis a decent amount. Uh, Urban Chestnut makes a good one. I want to say it's Dorf Beer uh, is maybe yeah. the brand name, uh, but they, they make a pretty good Dunkel. It, it, is, pretty, it is a style simple. that if you go to a brewery and once you read through the 12 IPAs that are on, if you see Munich Dunkel or Alt Beer or a few other styles, try that one first because it's it's probably worth your while. That's a great point. And the second beer we're drinking, what is it? 
Sure. So it looks like we have a little Wicked Weed. This is a Brett beer uh, fermented with a few different tropical fruits. Get some pineapple, some passion fruit, some mango, and a little bit of grapefruit. Uh, so this one's nice. I mean, to me, I get a lot of like lemongrass, like lemon peel, a lot of pineapple, a little bit of mango. Still has that nice kind of chalky, sweet tart, um, lactic character, but it's still pretty drinkable. Yeah, there's definitely some nice Brett. Almost uh, a hint of leathery hiding, hiding underneath the surface, but... It's fantastic, and the aroma and mouthfeel and flavor, for sure. This is great, man. I appreciate the, the taste so far. We're going to take another short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, check us out, Heritage Radio Network. Org. So this is the Beer Quiz with Massa Cicerone show. Uh, these guys uh, really do know a lot, and I'm really happy to be here. We've been talking about uh, getting Massa Cicerones on for a while, and they really do know their, what they're talking about, and, you know, beer is kind of getting up there with the wine, you know, wine, sommeliers, and uh, people are going to know what a Cicerone is soon if they don't already. So we got Max and Ryan. Um, so our next subject, we've, we've covered a couple of points uh, Let's just talk about the test. So the Master Cicerone test is notoriously grueling. It's two days. There's written oral exams and tastings. So, uh, but some of the people that are proctors who, who are doing the exams are, are really well-known people in the beer industry. So why don't you guys talk about a couple of those people? Yeah, I mean, it's... Because it it's might always... make it worth your while. You might want to take the test just to meet some of them. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Uh, and a lot of the people you see, you're like, I read two books by you before I even sat in this chair front of you. Uh, I have to say, um, the first proctor I had was uh, Jennifer Tolley out of uh, Auburn Alehouse. Uh, she just wrote a fantastic book on session beers, which Love that book. Uh, just came it. out. Yeah. I highly highly recommend reading that. Fantastic. Great uh, homebrew recipes at the end as well. And you know, The first uh, oral interview I had with her was about fermentation. And this is the first time I took the exam. And I, as I, the best way I could say it was verbal diarrhea. Um, and she kind of said, calm down. You know, it's, we're just talking about a fermenter here. And then I kind of got a second bearing. But uh, she giving me that kind of like, hey, it's just a test thing. And me going back and uh, talking about fermenters or bright tanks or something helped me out. Um, and then I also, in my first attempt, uh, sat in front of the you know, world-famous Mitch Steele, uh, which I'd love to have some beers with him outside of that environment. But uh, so former, former brewmaster of Stone and uh, just opened a, a new project down in Atlanta called New Realm brewing some great beers down there so uh that was it's interesting because you you know you they present the court when you when you get, get there on the first day and you know like oh man i'm gonna i'm gonna have to answer any question from the syllabus or whatever they pull out of their hat about whatever you know water malt ipas you know mitch deal asked you a question on ipas probably not gonna be but able to they, they, they have to brush up on it too before the test i'm sure right oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah no, you're you all studying you can't use the Webster's Dictionary defines an IPA as as, as your answer, but uh, so it was uh, it was fantastic. I know Ryan had a few different people um, when he took it. 
Yeah, I would say, you know, just from the format itself, I mean, two days long, you mentioned written, you're doing 12 different oral exams, eight different tasting exams. And to me, you just, you can never look kind of behind you. You know, you're, whatever you're doing, if you make a little mistake, you can't stop and be like, oh, crap, you know, I, I just messed this up. My, my day's done. The test is done. You just got to kind of stay in the moment and just plow through. It's an absolute gauntlet because, yeah, you know, you're going to walk into one room and there's Ray Daniels, call him a.k.a. Mr. Cicerone, <laughs> just sitting there. And, you know, he's, he's a really nice guy, but he doesn't give you much emotion when you're, when you're doing an exam with him. And, you know, he'll grill you for 10, 15 minutes. Then you walk out, you walk into the next room and there's Randy Mosier. <laughs> he wants to talk beer and food. You're like, okay, well, sure. I've read a few of your books and you obviously know your, your stuff. Um, so the proctors are, um, I mean, the, the leaders of our industry. I mean, they're the people that we learn from that we've, we've read their books. Uh, I had Steve Homburg on, um, cask, uh, Steve Parks on brewing. Dick oh, who's Steve Homburg? Uh, he does a lot of work around cask beer, real ale. Um, so, uh, you know, cask is a, a part of the keeping and serving, uh, portion of the syllabus. So, certainly fair game for for the exam really nice guy i was fortunate to actually have a few beers with him after the fact after the test um you know so yeah it's one of those things where you have to know your your stuff these aren't guys that um or or ladies that you're gonna just start to spew a bunch of verbal diarrhea at and they're gonna (laughs) say okay well that sounded good you know it either uh hits the mark or or it doesn't so it's it's daunting but i would also say this it's it's doable yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's sitting in front, of, it's like a job interview. They're sitting in front of Ray Daniels, and instead of getting a question, tell me about your greatest accomplishment, he's going to say, you know, tell me about a dark mile. <laughs> and you're going to be like, you know, Ray, that was the one thing I didn't think you were going to ask me today. So um, so I studied it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let's so. get some tougher questions. So this yeah. is, we're going to try to go through these quickly. Um, okay, wow, these are tough questions. Keeping and serving beer, since you mentioned that. Um, what as- I'm just reading these randomly, Justin, uh, put these together. What aspect of beer labeling is most useful in assessing the freshness of beer? Okay. Oh, good one. Got my glasses on. Yeah, I'd, I'd say a Best Buy date is definitely going to be the most consumer friendly. Yeah, Best Buy born on Julian date. Also, if it, you're in a store and it's the middle of summer and it says, you know, pumpkin ale, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of... Do what, figure out what month it is, and it, it probably isn't the freshest beer on the shelf. So. Well, maybe it's August and they released yeah, it. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, well, <laughs> look, at, look at your <laughs> date. So, Best Buy, David, you got to give us bu- buzzer. That's a buzzer up. Okay, yeah. good one. All right. Uh, another one. We're going to try to knock these out. Uh, the box you might see outside the beer cooler that is supplied with both carbon dioxide and nitrogen gas and has an output labeled 25% <laughs> CO2. That's I'm gonna it. go blender box, yeah. Uh, what is or a nitrogen box, generator? Yeah. Alex? <laughs> so for, yeah, what for, the, for the for the master exam, what they're gonna do is mess that up. They'll probably turn the valves off, empty the CO2. They're gonna they're gonna do something to put the gremlin in the system. So that uh, you know, Will you actually have to handle the system. Yeah, they're uh, so it's not just an oral question. So um, when you do your keeping and serving, so your draft your draft kind of assessment, you know. You're gonna have somebody like uh, Neil Witta, Neil Witt, who helped co-write the, the you know the BA draft quality manual, and he's gonna say, you have eight minutes to make this draft faucet pour beer at a flow rate of two ounces a second. The the kegrams back there, and 
you got to run. It's kind of like supermarket sweep almost. <laughs> you're you're trying to get the turkeys and the, and the high dollar bottoms first, uh, and then you you <laughs> run and you you know either works or it doesn't. And you go back and and you continue your troubleshooting. All right, another one. Uh, what is the best way to dry beer glasses, and what item or equipment is required? Uh, you you need some type of mat that's off the off the bar surface. So you need a, some type of airflow. Um, if you put it straight on, you're going to get potential chance for mold um, as the as the moisture accumulates in there. So some type of mat is is the best best use for uh, drying beer glasses. Yeah. Mat wire rack. Yeah. These are the questions I wasn't going to ask you, but since we yeah, got them, we're going to keep going. Keep them coming. All right. So if I can read them, what is the name of the wood or plastic plug inserted into a cask and through which it will be tapped? Uh, that'd be the Keystone. Yeah, I'm going to go Keystone as well. Keystone for 800 <laughs> <laughs> It's not a spigot. That's something different. So, yeah, the Keystone is um, is where you're going to drive the uh, the tap into the, the cask. Uh, and then you have, you know, your the bunghole up on the top, which if we have an opportunity to say bunghole on your show, we're going to take it. Uh, yeah, and then, also, uh, also referred to that, as the belly hole. Uh, <laughs> and then you can have the shiv. Some people say shive. Yeah. Um, There's the shiv yeah. and the bunghole. And, yeah. and the tut. Then you're on the next level, Ryan. So. I mean, we have been drinking, so let's just, let's just go there. <laughs> right, let's keep going. This could be a new show, the Master Cicerone Beer Quiz. This is pretty awesome. Beer styles. Okay. Um, carbonation levels in beer are commonly represented by what measure? So, so in the U.S., we say volumes of CO2. This could be grams per liter. And this isn't probably one of the most interesting facts of beer that most average consumers don't know is, you know, it's two and a half volumes is two and a half equal size vessels. So this, you know, cold Presidente I'm sipping on here next to this Jester King, uh, this probably has two and a half volumes of CO2, meaning there's when this is capped, there's two and a half bottles worth of CO2 in here. Um, and that's why we always pour beer into a glass uh, to make that foam release. So we knock out some of that CO2. Also, beer without foam is not beer. So uh, always pour beer in a glass. Wow. Amen. Um, what are we drinking? Is it Jester King? Yeah. So um, nice. part, of, part of our privileges traveling around talking about beer is being able to stow suitcases and bring back beer. So this is uh, Jester King Figlet, uh, farmhouse ale fermented with smoked Texas figs. Um, fantastic beer. Um, and... One that uh, has a little bit of that, you know, leathery, barnyard um, smoke. I love this. Each one of these questions is a whole show. So you guys are coming back. We're going to do this again. Okay, more questions. We got, um, it's, this is a style name question. Fill in the style name described by each phrase. Oh, that's a good one. A beer that, thank you, Justin, Justin. A beer that, I just can't read the print. A beer that contains, you have to read the questions. Lacey. <laughs> I have to read the questions. I joked about it, but that's. You really should. So we, read the one. We, we will say really quick style. about these questions. Uh, we had some copywriters take our course, and uh, we were very much yelled at for having sentences end with prepositions. So, okay, if guys. We're, if we're listening out there. Ready? Lightning yes. round. A beer that contains no roast or black malts and is often the strongest of English ales is English barley wine. I, I would agree. I don't have the answers, but it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one. Do a couple. Okay. This is Pale good. lager created and consumed in Munich. I think we've been talking about this one. Mm. That's my spirit beer. Spirit that would be a Munich Hellas. Got to give that to Max. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> Thank you, David. Straight, unblended, spontaneously fermented wheat-containing ale from Brussels. It's going to be a lambic. Oh, yeah. One of my faves. Will you just say the question one more time? Oh, yeah. Straight, unblended, spontaneously fermented wheat-containing ale from the Brussels region. The lambic, Brian. I believe, is what you said. Lambic. Wow. Yeah. This is good. Keep going, lazy. I like this. I'm <laughs> okay, learning something. Ready? A lager made with a grist of 30 to 40% corn or rice. Mm. So, just a lager? I mean, that's a well, it does open question. Lager, so that could be but... either a American lager or American light lager, um, depending on the ABV mm-hmm. and bitterness units. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And one more, and then I'm going to ask a right, serious question. Best known Irish beer style made with roast barley. Can I hear it? Yeah, world famous Irish stout. Oh yeah, I like that Irish dry stout. Now I'm just on on a off like just to go on a final like nice conversation before we go. That was a great beer quiz. Thank you, Justin and Lacey. Oh, yeah. um, you know, you're talking about language. We had a great conversation before about you know descriptive words. Um, you know, when you talk about fermentation, you know what's going on there. Yeast, there's ale versus lager. One thing that's interesting is how do you talk to people about sour beers? You know, like there's there's wild, there's sour, there's brett. You know, is that how do you talk to people about that as educators? Sure. Well, I think one is just assigning a little bit of a level of intensity to the acidity or the sourness of the beer, just to to brace somebody, no pun intended, for what they're about to experience. Um, sour on its own, I think, can be a little. Uh, abrasive or off-putting but like max said is it sour like greek yogurt is it like uh, lemon juice is it acetic you know candy like sour uh tart so there's kind of the basic taste element of that question max what did you say uh warheads warheads Kid, the candy kids eat uh, like lemon, <laughs> like lemon warheads. See, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and then the, I know about, I, I know candy about horse plant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, then you can get into the the flavor realm of you know certainly if there's bacteria, um, you can get into one or multiple flavor spaces. If there's wild yeast, you know that's going to take us back into some of that wild funky stuff we've been talking about. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you just want to kind of frame up and paint the best picture you can for somebody of what they're about to experience using as much descriptive language as we can. And then ultimately you want them to taste it and kind of see what they get out of it. There's also um, sometimes just asking people questions like, what do you, what do you drink? Do you drink kombucha? No. Okay. Probably not going to start you off here. Do you like Greek yogurt? I mentioned that a few times. Um, same thing translates to bitterness with coffee. Uh, we just asked somebody, I just asked somebody the other day, it's, do you drink coffee? And they said, I like coffee with a lot of sweetener and a lot of creamer. And I said, you probably don't like very bitter beers, do you? And they said, Absolutely not. So, um, but they like a little bit of bitterness. So it's finding that level, and then that's the the base. And then once you have your base, you you build up. You compared it to me like white or red wine too, right? Like, oh, I like a floral white, or I like a rich red. You can kind of pair. Yeah, it with I mean, it. it's uh, to, to bring people into the category. It's if you start them off on something that you like, and you probably it's not going to be the their cup of tea or cup of beer for the first time. It's finding the thing that. It's in their space at that time in that place. Mm. Start them off there, and then before they know it, they're going to be, you know, cordon beer in their basement. So yeah, and I think the best way, you know, Max mentioned this earlier, using just food as the analogy. If you just talk to people about what they really enjoy eating and drinking on a regular daily basis, and then you kind of start to uncover what those flavors are, and that's one of the beauties about beer is whether it's you know 
you know, a malt forward beer, hop forward beer, fermentation forward beer, there's going to be a flavor that somebody's going to find that they love. Uh, they just might not have discovered it at this point. Or may have not known it was in a beer. That's cool. You know, and, and for what you guys are doing as beer educators, I mean, do you think, what is the goal with your knowledge? I mean, like, let's say we're talking about sour beer. Is it that every account out there has the exact wording on a beer list so that everyone can answer it, even if the, the, the bartenders aren't educated? I mean, wh- how far can this education go? Or do you think that everyone just across the board will be picking up on better language, better knowledge? For, for me, it's uh, that when somebody describes a beer, they describe it in the best possible light. Um, the worst thing ever is to say, hey, what's that taste like? And people go, it's, it's super bitter. You wouldn't like it. Because right, if I'm a non-beer drinker, I'm going to say, well, it's super bitter. I'm not going to like it. Um, but to say, oh, it's, it's a, you know, using, we say qualitative versus quantitative. So it's got a pronounced bitterness. It's kind of like arugula or it's kind of like, you know, black espresso. Um, giving beer the best possible chance. Because a lot of times people want to order beer on their, on their first call or maybe their second call. And sometimes they're persuaded not to because of how it's described. Or maybe the, the person that's, that's selling it says, I don't like it. Right, so you know it's it's our job to say if you don't like it, you should at least know how to describe it, because you know not I'll, everyone. I'll likes give that. Something. That's you just yeah. said something really great. I'll give that credit to beer. I think one thing that's happened with wine, and the exception is like the new natural wine movement, which I, I'm a big fan of. So much of wine has become this international styles. You know, there's certain types of reds, certain type of whites, and you can make it whether it's Slovenia or Australia. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of variation, but they have the styles down. And I, and I think that's great for the market and for consumers as well. But I like that beer is still in that phase where you've got country styles. I didn't know how to describe a lambic until you read that question to me, Lacey. So uh, how do you see where beer is going? You think mm-hmm. that beer is going to become more international stylized? Or you think that there's room for people to be open to tastes and descriptions? I think there's a ton of opportunity for people just to discover what's going on with beer right now. We kind of take it for granted because we work in the industry. I mean, a lot of times I'm traveling the country with Max, who knows more about beer than most people I have ever met. Um, So if I'm talking about beer with him, everything seems like, oh, of course we know everything about what's happening and all these flavors. I think for the the majority of people out there, um, we kind of take for granted that they should know this or... They may know this where they really don't. And I think that's really our role and our goal as Master Cicerones is ultimately getting more people interested in beer. If you don't think there's a beer that you like, you just haven't found it yet, or if you've dipped your toe in and you maybe haven't had the best experience, we just haven't gotten you to the right place yet. And that's what I really like about what I've learned and hopefully what we can do moving forward is... You know, just getting more and more people and excited about beer. the whole industry, yeah. right? I mean, so uh, one one thing I learned um, from a former brewmaster named George Rice, who was kind of one of my early mentors, is he mentioned to me the rule of three. You really have to have it three times in a full capacity to make that decision if you like it or you don't like it. So um, sometimes trying something once, maybe not even the right ambiance, you don't want to be too quick to judge. You want to take a, I always say, have a t- have a beer to sit on the couch and, and really get into it. And, and then if you if you if you don't like it after the third one, it's it's not your cup of cup of tea. But if you do, and then where where did you know George Rice? Uh, so I've he was a, a mentor. He when I was doing sales out in California, he came out and did some events. And uh, he's he's been all around the country. Used to used to be kind of us in a, in a sense for Anheuser Busch, but um, smart guy and uh, you know third generation brewer. Mm-hmm. His, his family had a brewery in Spring, 
around Springfield, Illinois. So it was, it was in his blood. So he was the most passionate person I've ever met about beer, which is, um, you know, More you can, you, you can know a lot, but if you don't have passion, <laughs> Cheers to yeah, yeah. If you, George Rice. if you, if you know a lot, but you don't have passion about what you're talking about, then people aren't going to care. So, and Ryan, you want to give up the shout out to someone because we're going to wrap up in a few minutes. Uh, well, uh, maybe I'll give a shout out to Max, the guy sitting across from me. Um, you know, I definitely I'd learned a ton from a lot of people, but Max was kind of the one that, you know, showed me uh, a lot of the way and really kind of guided me as I dug in through the, the Master Cicerone journey. And very, very sure I would not have passed on the first try if it wasn't for Max. And Lacey, what's it like working with these guys? Oh, my gosh. Well, every day is a hoot and a holler sitting across from this guy over here, Max. And I wish I could sit next to you more, Ryan, but it's great. I learned so much from you guys. So one guy's in New York City, one guy's in Buffalo. You guys yeah. are the talk of the town. I bow down <laughs> before you. And um, I'm actually now going to be intimidated by Max Cicerones. I, I really feel like nah. you guys know your stuff, and, I'm, and we're going to talk more with you guys. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank we you for having us. We sincerely appreciate us, yeah. it. Uh, big shout out. Um, What's coming up? We got uh, July Goober Month is in the works. It's the tenth year. It's it's something that's been around. It predated you know Brewers Guild and all that, but it's still going to happen. July eighteenth, New York City Brewers Choice. Some fun stuffs going on in New York City. Um, thanks again for joining us. Big shout out to our producer Justin Kennedy, engineer David Tatashore. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, woo. <laughs>